We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall. Welcome to The Meaningful Life. We're available on Apple, Spotify, Podbeam, Amazon Music, and wherever you find your podcasts. Ask me what I really want. What makes me come alive? That's the question that my witness today was never asked in her therapy. So when she became a psychotherapist herself, she started asking her clients and has now written a book prompted by that very question. Charlotte Fox Weber, trained at the Tavistock and Portman Trust, the Institute of Psychoanalysis and Regents University. She's the author of What We Want, A Journey Through 12 of Our Deepest Desires. Welcome to the podcast. On the subject of wanting, what in your background and upbringing made you want or need to be a psychotherapist? Ah, what a great opening question. I have always been insatiably curious and some might say nosy. And I think I feel intrigued by people's stories. I'm interested. I want to know what's really going on. And I've always felt somewhat bothered by how people present themselves and the interior story, including my own. And why did you want your therapist to ask you this question so much, do you think? I think that without knowing it, I'm a therapy romantic. And I had some vision, a vague vision, that therapy could be utterly liberating and transformative and uncensored. And that it would be a space for real depth where you could say the things you can't say anywhere else. You could be unvarnished and confrontational with yourself. And then therapists would just kind of go along with whatever I was saying. And was it difficult to be unvarnished in your family of origin then? In some ways, yes. And I think I talk about this in my book where I think candor can be its own mask. So I would be opinionated and open about some things, but I wouldn't really say the thing, the thing that was actually bothering me, the thing I was actually feeling. I think it's really hard to to be truly open in those ways. Candor is a mask. Now that sounds interesting. I think it's possible to to be so utterly frank on one subject that you're kind of coming up with a sideshow a dazzling sideshow for whatever the real story is. Yeah, I've been thinking a lot about my mother just recently, and she would talk about everything to do with other people. So she'd be very happy to talk about, you know, how things were going between, I don't know, her sister and her niece. But, and this is only something I've really thought about many years later, in fact, too late, The one topic, I mean, I'm sure you can guess the therapist what the topic that was off the table was. I want you to tell me even if I have my guess. Okay, our relationship. That was the one topic that we never talked about. And we could talk about what else was going on in the family, but not what was going on between the two of us. And I think that's a very good example of of candor being a mask. 
Right. And I think that as a therapist, I probably also am able to hide quite a lot. So you delve deep into other people's stories and I try to face myself and bring myself in, but there is still a lot of hiding. And I, I open the book with the Winnicott quote about how it's a joy to be hidden, a disaster not to be found. I think that closeness is a constant struggle for all of us in different ways and, and we all hide, but I wanted to be found. And I think most people want even if it's difficult, they want someone to locate them and call them out in a kind way. And maybe that's why as children, we love hide and seek so much. We want to yes. be found. Yes. And if you see a child hide and not be looked for, it's kind of devastating. Eventually, they have to just come out themselves and find their own way. And it's a feeling of being ignored. And just out of interest, if they actually had asked you, what do you really want? How would you have answered it? What sort of age are we at this point in your life? Well, I began therapy when I was six years old. Wow. I know. Isn't that always shocking sounding? And it was ostensibly because I had worries and I'd had heart surgery when I was four and a half. So I had terrible death anxiety and I, I panicked about not existing. And I I felt like I got sent to jail for my worries. And the way this man said worries was very irritating to me. And it made it a kind of dangerous feeling space because I thought I was in trouble in some way. And I was because he was tortured to be in a room with. I'm surprised I didn't put you off therapy for life. It motivated me in some very perverse way. And he was a great example of what I vowed not to do because he was withholding, he was judgmental, he was persecutory, he he set traps, he pounced on any material I gave him in a very kind of predictable, cliched way. He he made me feel like I was being eaten alive, but not in an accurate, respectful way. And I guess that there was a real longing that I hadn't understood myself that I wanted to be able to discuss difficult things, but certainly not with him in that format. Well, I'm completely and utterly shocked, to be perfectly honest. Shocked by what part? Well, I'm shocked by what an incredibly bad experience that was. And how could anybody do something like that to a six-year-old? I know. I mean, he had... He had a mirror that he could actually look in on, and he really set a trap for me. He had a drawer full of coins, and he would sometimes get these coins out, and he would kind of have me play with them. That was probably the most playful thing that went on. And he excused himself one day and said, I'll be back shortly. And I opened the drawer, and I stole the coins. I mean, I just put them in my pocket. And he came back a few minutes later. And he didn't say anything, but he looked at me and he went like this. He just held out his hand to you. And then I didn't budge and we had a standoff. And then he said, and eventually I gave back the coins that I had stolen. But I've thought about that story a lot. What was going on and why did he do that? And why did I do that? And and why was there no follow-up discussion about it? Because actually, I think, I now think that 
I stole the coins because I wanted something. I did want something. You wanted something from him, but he was unable to offer it. and I had to steal it. <laughs> I just feel immense pity for this poor small child. Well, interesting that it's pity. Yes. Yeah, I had my revenge. I had a very satisfying moment with this person because months later, I was telling my parents I really didn't want to keep going. And they said, you can say anything you want to him. It's a space where you can say whatever you feel like saying. And and I kind of think it would have been helpful had they begun with that because that's actually quite enticing rather than you're here for your worries. So I got excited when they said I could say anything I wanted. And I arrived for our next session and he he came to the waiting room at this clinic to collect me. And in front of everyone in the waiting room, I looked at him and I said, hello, pig face. And he blushed. He turned red and he didn't say anything. But I now understand. I felt schadenfreude. I felt some kind of sadistic glee that I had spoken, first of all, what I felt was true. And second of all, that I'd had an impact on him. I know the story is not very flattering to me that I called him pig face. Well, it shows huge resilience and uh, bravery, I would say, as well. And also what therapy can be that actually you can, you can say what you really think. And that is so important because actually people often can't say what they want to say to their therapist. And it is incredibly powerful when people do say, you know, I felt let down about this. Yes, when you can be disappointed. In your therapist. I mean, that is, if you can be disappointed with your therapist to their face, that is very powerful. So powerful. And so often when friends are talking about therapy limitations or frustrations, I'll say, did you bring this up to your therapist? And they'll say, oh, no, I I haven't said it. No. Why not? It's very hard to be direct. And back to your mother. I was just thinking about it at this moment. It's very hard to discuss the here and now and to discuss your relationship with the person you're sitting across from. Yeah. I wish I could go in a time machine back, but uh, unfortunately that conversation is impossible to have now. Anyway, that would be my want at this precise moment. It's something which I can't have. But it's helpful to voice those things too. Yes, yes. I mean, you can guess what I'm going to be talking about with my analyst this week. (laughs) I'm very nosy. What would you say to your mother if you could go back? If I could go back, I said, I would say, why do we never talk about our relationship? I mean, I think that would be a, an opening question. Or are you aware that we never talk about our relationship? Or we've never talked about our relationship? I think that would be my question. Yes, even if unanswerable. Well, it could be. I've never thought about it. And that might be the sort of the conscious answer. So those are my wants, which are entirely impossible. And I think we might be beginning to get towards an answer to my next question. We tend to focus on the smaller desires rather than the deeper wants. So, you know, we think about, uh, you know, I want a holiday sort of kind of thing rather than the deeper things. Why do you think that is? I think that we are frightened of deprivation 
disappointment and we hold on to vague fantasies because we are terrified of being let down by life and devastated. So there's that little glimmer of hope if you haven't voiced it, if you haven't pursued something, if you haven't written a book and you just have that idea, it can be perfect and unrealized. And I think that applies to a lot of areas of life. And I think we're frightened of upsetting people, you know, that if I had spoken to my mother that I might have upset her. Yes. In some sort of deep way. I'm not quite certain how, because it's, you know, sitting here talking to you, it seems like such a, a harmless question. But, you know, something stopped me from asking it or even becoming aware that I wanted to ask it. I find it so sympathetic and understandable. And, and also, I, I think it's a very hard question to ask because it's emotional intimacy. It's so overwhelming and uneasy making, even if it's what we long for. And I think there's, there's real fragility in that and vulnerability and loss, loss in, in so many ways. What if we don't know what we want? I think that first of all, it's okay and sometimes very helpful to not know what you want and to let yourself change your mind. But I think that making a point of paying attention to bigger issues is a habit that we can cultivate and practice and be aware of. I think when you start thinking about what really matters to you, you discover it more easily. You come across astonishing things. You go out of your way and begin to prioritize. But it has to be a kind of big value. So if somebody's sitting here now and thinking, you know, what do I really want? What would you suggest they could do that would help them start to think about that question so they don't come up with a holiday or, you know, 10,000 extra pounds sort of kind of stuff? I would be interested in the holiday and 10,000 extra pounds for what that would give them or what they think that would give them. I think you can you can follow up with and what about it? What's behind that? Just keep going. Don't don't stay at the surface of it. So what's the holiday really about? Is it freedom? Is it adventure, excitement, joy, fun? I mean, I, I think that we we often have a lot of our own answers if we allow ourselves to be kind of freshly surprised by life, we do have more clarity than we realize, but it's as if we're looking for permission in certain ways, like just going back to you and your mother. There are so many invisible injunctions between human beings about what you're allowed to say, what you should say, what you should do, what you ought to feel. And these invisible rules can be very problematic and often go unquestioned. So a lot of us are waiting for, I, I mean, I, including me, when I was waiting for therapists to ask me what I wanted, we're waiting for someone to say, okay, here you are, what matters to you? What do you want? And go this way. And it doesn't really work that way. This is a quote from your book that I found interesting. I'd like you to sort of expand on it for me. We are socialized to perform and conceal desires. And I think this possibly goes to the heart of the problem of actually knowing what we want. We're socialized to perform and conceal desires. Expand that out for me. We put on a show and we don't really talk about our inner experience 
we have to kind of hold back for one thing, just to be civilized, to be remotely polite, to not be completely savage. But in all sorts of ways, we are pretending and kind of scripting how we're supposed to be. And I think that we we lose something raw, and it's such an overused word these days, authentic, but genuine. And back to your question about how to figure out what you really want, if you sit down with yourself and you ask yourself what really matters to you in your life, you will come up with interesting things, just core, core things, but you you may not have discussed them. You may have circled around them. It may be things like love, desire, power. A lot of times we conceal things because it's it's not very pretty. And I think we want to keep it nice and we want to keep it acceptable. So what we want might be to have sex with someone wildly inappropriate or to steal someone's job or to get out of our marriage or to run away. It could be something more subtle than that, but it's sort of mortifying to admit those things. So let's take that one of your examples. So let's say, you know, we're secretly, we're actually secretly hiding it from ourselves that we want to run away from our marriage, say, for example. Now, what do we do about that? Do we run away from our marriage or do we just sort of take it as more symbolic than realistic? I I don't know. What what would you do if you had a client who, you know, they were saying, I think I want to run away from my marriage? First of all, I think that that happens every day for most people in married life. And I think (laughs) that normalizing the struggle of relationships is a really important beginning, that this is not so unheard of. Of course, people fantasize about running away all the time throughout life. Again, like hide and seek, we play our own versions of hide and seek and we fantasize about running away well past childhood. But admitting it to yourself or admitting it in a safe space like therapy, it actually gives you agency over yourself so that you don't have to then act on it, but you can acknowledge it. Sometimes you don't have to do anything about it, which sounds passive of me, but it's actually a great relief. Like when you realize that you want to kill your sibling, for instance, Mm -hmm. you can feel consoled by that. It doesn't mean that you will then go and kill your sibling. You might even feel tenderness and love once you have expressed the aggression, not necessarily to the person. So when people want to run away from their marriage, what is it that they would like to run towards? What makes it so entrapping and unbearable? What feels so restrictive? Very often we have colluded in our own self-imprisonment and we've given away something of ourselves that feels precious and then we're resentful and feel very wronged. So looking at some of your 12 deepest desires, one of them is desire itself that uh, we want to be desired and we want to feel desire. In the book, you talk a lot about desire exaggerates and minimises. Let's let's look at that and then perhaps you can give us a case history because the book is full of case histories that would help us sort of understand how desire exaggerates and minimises. 
I think that we have these elaborate theaters in our own minds and we're much more creative than we realize. And tell me if it's problematic that I keep on referring back to earlier things you've said, but there are certain recurring themes and we often freak ourselves out about whatever a thought or feeling may suggest. It's actually a rich tapestry of our own inner world. And when we can be curious about it in a kind of creative, playful way without kind of interpreting everything literally, then thoughts and feelings come and go and turn into other things. And I think that curiosity rather than judgment is a really helpful starting point. So with desire, you can desire a big house, even if you think that you're actually an earnest academic and you don't care about money. You can desire having sex with someone, even if you're in a relationship with someone else and it would be all wrong and terrible and a really bad idea. You can feel all sorts of longings and they don't have to be kind of determining your fate. They don't have to be signposts for saying, uh-oh, you're really headed for trouble or... So you must go and sleep with that transgressive person sort of kind right, of thing. Right, like this is the answer. I mean, there can be something so seductive about the powerful force of feeling desire for someone, especially sexually. I mean, look at the way it gets people in trouble. I mean, it's Odysseus putting wax in his ears so he doesn't get pulled away by the sirens. I think we lose ourselves when we're overcome with desire, but we also kind of love that. There's something dangerous and thrilling about it. I mean, I'm sitting here and I sort of understand that um, we don't have to act on our desires, but I'm sort of channeling about three million of my clients this moment and um, I'm feeling inside absolutely terrified because, you know, on one hand, I have all these transgressive desires and on the other hand, I know how much that, you know, if I told my partner my transgressive desires, here I am channeling my clients, they would be horrified and I'm not quite certain what I'm going to do with this So help me out. Why do you feel that you have to do anything? This is my client speaking, you know, so and I'm representing them as our listeners because, you know, there's not an awful lot of point working out what our desires are if we're not going to do anything with them. So I'm sorry to be provocative, but, you know, I can sort of hear my clients and my listeners saying that. I think that desire is like a direction of travel. I think that when we get to the bigger picture longings rather than the the very specific granular urges, it's like looking at the stars. It doesn't mean that you absolutely arrive, but you, you have a forward motion and you have a sense of your values. And and I say values, values always sounds a little bit moralistic, but I think that having a kind of continually updated sense of your own core values really helps guide and anchor decision-making. Let me help you out here because I'm getting this image of a sort of a taking the end, we're in fairy tale world. If you, you pick up the end of a piece of string and you follow it, and we think the answer is the string is going to take us into this room and the answer is in the room. 
But sometimes the answer is in the room behind the room sort of kind of thing, in the room after that. And I think possibly to illustrate this, because in the book you've got these wonderful case histories, we should talk about Jack, because what he desired and what he really desired might be two different things. So tell us about Jack. Yes. So when it comes to desire and most people saying, I don't know what I want, or I really want this one thing and I can't get it. So what's the point? I think that very often there are different layers and you can always investigate a desire and think about what's behind it, whether it's big or small, whether it's a desire for food, sex, something material, something philosophical. I think there's often something surprising and you discover something fresh, whatever that desire may be. So I wrote about this person I've called Jack, not his real name. He presented incredible contempt and frustration with his wife. He was hugely pissed off at her for letting him down. It was the ripoff of marriage, the ripoff of age. He'd been screwed over from some promise of glory. And I think that speaks to many of us. He slept with prostitutes. He had lots of kind of loopholes in his sense of what was okay and what worked for him. It was compensation in his mind for what he was missing with his wife. And what was so surprising to me was that I chickened out. I thought that I was daring in my mode of being a therapist. I think of myself as being kind of somewhat provocative. And I go there, I I look at the elephant in the room, I ask the difficult questions. I'm not afraid or daunted by awkward, taboo subjects. But actually, I hadn't really asked him about what went on with these prostitutes. And he used a different word for prostitutes. And I've used a different word for prostitutes in my book because it's no longer an acceptable word. But actually, it's the word I'm most comfortable with. So I I hope it's okay that I'm using that word. I think a lot of the terms for that line of work are problematic. Jack thought of himself as a woman when he would have these encounters with prostitutes. And it was really about something very different from what I assumed. And he wasn't just thinking of himself as a woman. He was actually putting on women's clothing and um, performing woman, or at least his version of women. He was dressing up as a woman and also just engaging in a fantasy of this other life that he longed for but couldn't have as a woman. Not to the point where he was going to transition. And it was actually an example of a realization that didn't have to lead to a massive change in what he was going to do. People often say in therapy, but what do I do? What should I do? And in his case, it was the discovery of something that went way back to a very early feeling of rejection. So in fact, we've got several rooms here. We've got, you know, I want sex, I want to be desired. Behind that room, there was a room about a sort of an alternative life that he didn't lead about somehow being a woman. And then there was something else, another room behind that room as well, wasn't there? Yes. And the great discovery was that actually his wife was not the villain of his story. He was holding her 
accountable for some hideous crime emotionally, something that she hadn't done to him. And I think we often do that with our loved ones, where without full realization, we feel massively injured by them. And like they become the baddies in our life story. And I think that we can relieve ourselves from feeling so aggrieved, so kind of victimized in a way, when we realize that actually it's because we wanted something utterly impossible, something different, something that is out of reach. It can be so consoling to recognize that you want something impossible. So in a sense, one of his problems was accepting that he only had one life. Accepting that we only have one life is a massive shocker for most of us. Again, without full realization all the time, but it's like there's this assumption that you'll have another chance or that you can figure it out at another moment. And we postpone, we want do-overs, we think we can go back or we think that we're trapped, but there will be some kind of revenge resolution. This is it. And that's a bit of a shocker, isn't it, really? It's such a shocker. Even if we don't think we're going to have a second life, we can start from scratch at, you know, I don't know, 18 again. But we sort of think, you know, I'm a 63 going on 64, that, you know, somehow I'm going to fit in another career or I'm going to, you know, study this and go off and become that. You know, it's difficult to give up that thought that there's enough time to do all those things. Accepting limitations and limits is really hard and really helpful. It's enormously liberating because actually the belief in kind of endless possibilities gets us in a lot of trouble and turmoil. So discovering your, if I'm allowed to turn it on you just a bit, but discovering that you really wanted to ask your mother that question or that you longed for something that wasn't possible. It can be comforting. I mean, I don't want to speak for you for how it feels, but it doesn't necessarily have to be tragic. Yeah, no, I'm not thinking that it's tragic at all. But um, yeah, I think that it actually was possible if I had really thought about it. I mean, you know, we could have had that conversation, or at least I could have had to try to have that conversation. My mother died when she was, I mean, 86, but she died with dementia. And then I had about five years with my father. And I was able to have those conversations with my father because I sort of got braver, so to speak. So I don't think it was, I don't think these were things were impossible, just blooming difficult. But it didn't feel possible to you then? Well, it was worse than not feeling possible. I never actually really thought about it. And actually, deep to myself, this is sort of like your own hidden desires and said, you know, I would like to have this conversation. I'm having this thought, you know, probably 10 years too late. And this is something that plays out all the time for people in therapy. And the unlived life, the the realization of what could have been and what was possible. And you're right, of course, you could have had conversations. We have endless retrospective possibilities, but letting go of those retrospective possibilities is a big one. I mean, that's another kind of expectation we have that that we could have done something differently that we should have taken a left instead of a right, that that 
person we had the fling with was actually a really great, wonderful potential love and life would be better if only. So there is definitely a room marked regrets, isn't there? But it's so empowering to actually acknowledge and that includes a regret. And it doesn't have to be overwhelming to have a regret. So we're going to talk more in a moment. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. If you'd like to get involved with the program, you can go to my website, www.andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, and you'll find out how to write in a letter, or you can find out how to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life. And it would be really good if you could, because it costs money to put this on, and it would be really good if I could have some support with it. So please do sign up. So here's a letter I've been sent. Discovering my wife's affair 18 months ago of over two years with an ex-boyfriend after we'd had 10 years together was the most devastating thing that's ever happened to me, and I must say my wife too. We had marriage counselling for a few months, which helped a little. My wife really struggled with validating my emotions and showing empathy, even though she was absolutely heartbroken. After struggling through as best we could and both trying our best, we still couldn't solve our communication issues. It dawned on me that she might be autistic. We have an autistic son together. He's the child of an abusive relationship my partner was in before she met me, and I've brought him up as my son. My wife was privately diagnosed three months later. I've had EMDR and trauma therapy for my childhood and abandonment issues and the PTSD caused by the affair. My wife has had a limited amount of therapy and has been remorseful and apologetic, cut all contact with the affair partner, been transparent and open. I feel she was also manipulated by the affair partner to a certain extent, as she's always found it hard to read people's emotions and intentions. We had neurodiverse communication counselling, which really helped. We've done the what, the why and the how. I know it'll never make sense to me completely, but I think she gets it how hurt and angry, etc. I've been by her actions. I'm trying not to mention the affair because she finds it extremely distressing and leads to shutdowns, tickings and even meltdowns. So I keep it to myself. Is there a point where I can compartmentalise the affair and stop trying to explain it? I feel we're well on our way to a new, better, deeper and more meaningful relationship. I really like this guy. So do I. He's so considerate and highly attuned to everyone around him. I do want to know what it's like for him, which might seem very obvious, but he starts by saying that this is kind of grueling for him and he refers to PTSD, but he seems to need space just for grieving, for acknowledging. It's tough being the good guy all the time, isn't it? Yeah. And sometimes it's really helpful to get in touch with the bad guy in yourself. The rage, the aggression, the sense of injustice, whatever it is, he's, he's handling it 
maybe a little too well, doing all the right things, seeing it from different perspectives. But where's the primitive savage part? And we're not, just so we get it clear, we're not suggesting that you're going to be expressing these directly to your wife. But, you know, this is back to the following the wool. Just because we're pulling the strand doesn't necessarily mean we're going to go exactly there in a literal kind of sense. Certainly not. And it's, it's a good point. I'm a massive fan of unsent letters. And my eight-year-old son, over the holiday, wrote a postcard to his frenemy. And he said... <laughs> I hope you eat shit. Hate. He signed it hate, not love. And I said, wonderful. Do not send that postcard. Shall shall I tell you about an unsent letter to my mother after you've suddenly reminded me? I I wrote a letter to my mother and for some reason I put it in the back of a library book. Being a good middle-class family, we had library books. And... (laughs) I forgot all about it. The book went back to the library. When they sort of checked it back in, they found the letter. They gave it to my mother. Oh, wow. What did the letter say? I have no recollection whatsoever of what the letter said. And I assume that she read it, but we never talked about the contents of it. And you really hadn't intended to send it to her? I don't think so. I mean, the fact that I put it in the back of a library book... I mean, I didn't give it to her directly, but obviously, possibly on an unconscious level, I might have wanted to give it to her. I don't know. I love that. But also that she didn't say anything about it. Well, she told me that she'd had the letter and you know been given back to her, et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, I wouldn't know the story. But I didn't actually get the letter back. We didn't discuss the contents, you know, at all. So sort of deeply symbolic, really, isn't it? Deeply. But anyway, let's get back on for our mother. mother. Why? I'm very intrigued by your mother. But I I think there's something about going through the side door with this man saying, I mean, his request in a way is, how can I go easier on my wife? Am I right in that sense? Like, what is it that he's asking for? Well, that is one of the things I would say is, he's not entirely clear about what he's asking for, what he really wants. And I think that would be really helpful for him to think, what is it that he really wants? The nearest we get to a question is, so I keep it to myself, is there a point where I can compartmentalise the affair and stop trying to explain it? Right, right. I love that particular sentence. The point is he hasn't explained it. There's still something massively unresolved about it. and. It has spread everywhere. It's metastasized emotionally and isn't compartmentalized. He's been quite kind of quite strict with himself because he is sort of in his way telling himself off. In what way is he telling himself off? Thinking that he should be able to put it to one side and kind of get on with things and not keep going over it. So what I want to say to him is you're stuck And that's okay. That's a a really good place to be. I mean, if you were going to ask for gold standard of what you're going to do, you've been through the gold standard. So that's brilliant. But you're still stuck. And that for me is really interesting because there's something, there's a door, back to my analogy, there's another door behind this that you need to go through. Now, it might not actually have anything to do with your wife, But I think we sort of want to know what he really, really wants. And 
you know, let's start with it with the affair. What does he really, really want? Is it that he wants to explain it to himself? Can we go back further? Yeah. He brought up someone else's son, calls him his own, and that son is neurodiverse. He has gone out of his way to be a very self-sacrificial person in some ways. And maybe it's deeply rewarding, but he, he seems to have done the right thing for a long time. And my guess is that he was doing the right thing right all the way back to his childhood. Back, I mean, we've been talking too much about my mother, but, you know, let's talk about his mother. I have, I have a feeling that, you know, he was a really good son who, you know, didn't want to bring up stuff that would upset his mother, that saying this would kill her. I'm waving my fingers in the air and quotation marks because it's sort of, Something that my clients sometimes say, you know, I couldn't say that to my mother, it would kill her. Right. But also, for all his goodness, has he felt seen? Has Mm. he felt valued? Has he felt cherished? Yeah. He refers to his wife not reading other people's emotions. Does he feel that she really empathizes for him? Does he feel seen? Really, really seen. And... We're back to what you were saying about, you know, sometimes we have to give up the fantasy room of the second life of being able to go back and do the regrets. And we also have to give up the one that, you know, (laughs) there is somebody somewhere in the world who's going to get us 100% and is going to 100% know us and see us. But it's so wonderful when you can admit the fantasy, however preposterous it is. Like I admitted to myself the other day that I somehow expected immortality, omnipotence. A woman in therapy with me said, I want to be worshipped. And we sat there together and we discussed it because, of course, it's a fantasy that over time she could have that worship, but she's allowed to want that. Yeah, I was going to say worship, bring it on. Yeah, and knowing it about herself also spares her expecting it in a certain way. Like that's, desire doesn't get entirely fulfilled, not the big desires. That's okay. We can actually deal with not enoughness because you can be seen a little bit and it's great when you feel seen, but Is it ever enough in a lasting way? Not really. So let's sort of wrap this up. But I think that one of the terrible things about affairs is it sort of finds the fault lines in your life and blows them open. One of the great things about affairs is it finds those fault lines and it finds the things sometimes behind your relationship, the things that actually, some of the things actually belong to just you. So... As I say, I think, you know, what do I really, really want? Even if they are things like, you know, a second life or to be worshipped and all of those other things, I think there is something, there's another room that wants to be discovered here. And there's nothing wrong with being stuck. The only problem is if you're expecting your wife to somehow unlock the door for you by doing A, B, C, and you'll feel better because you know, our fantasy is that our partner is going to unlock that next door and usher us through. And actually, it's our job to find the hidden doors in our personality, the next door, the deeper door. I think you're right. And I think that we get hesitant and frozen and we start waiting 
waiting for for someone, which is why we complain a lot. I think it's much easier to complain. And, and that can happen in therapy too. We can complain about the small stuff just as much as we can want the material things instead of wanting the bigger things in life. We can speak negatively about a colleague or the irritating delay in the Amazon delivery or the ripoff with a friend, whatever it is, like small complaints become the obstacles that we use as excuses to never leave the mazes we're stuck in. So unfortunately, we're running out of time. So I have to ask you, as a witness on The Meaningful Life, what makes your life meaningful? Connection is a massive one for me. And it's a thread throughout, I think, connecting, connecting with music, art, people, most of all, and internally connecting is so important to me that I actually find it unbearable to be without it. I'm I'm somewhat addicted to it. So I can never have enough of it. And I'm quite demanding of it in friendships, in pretty much all relationships. On some, even if it's just a very kind of one-off connection encounter, even if it's a very strange request, it's it's my meaning force. How about you? I'm not going to answer that one because we really have got not enough time to do that. But our connection doesn't end because we're going to be continuing this conversation. We're going to talk about an idea in um, Charlotte's book about the troublemaking twins who are pride and shame and how we switch between feeling superior and inferior. And it's one of the big, big traps that I see all the time. So I'm really looking forward to talking about that with Charlotte. And if you want to hear that bonus material, you can subscribe directly via Apple or Spotify. We're also available on Amazon Music. If you want to become a supporter of The Meaningful Life and get access to all the bonus material, here are the details. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.